0: Hello, and welcome back to Stuck in the Middle Kingdom with you. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you'll know that we switch around between the goings-on in the school, the cradle of elites, those silly arguments between the foreign teachers and the management and among themselves, and, on the other hand, the wider story of China. For the next few episodes, we are doing the latter. We're going back, primarily, to the period between the end of the last Chinese dynasty, which folded in 1912 and the beginning of Communist China in 1949. This is the period of the Republic of China, not the People's Republic which exists today. But the fledgling republic had serious internal and external pressures to deal with, pressures which would eventually get the better of them. In the first of these three episodes, we go to Nanjing, discover the founding ideals of Chinese republicanism and how they continue today, although not in China. I expected the 15th of December to be a Monday like any other. It was too cold for the outside assembly, so I'd be sitting at my desk in the back of the room, lamenting the fact that at no other time would the weekend be further away than now. The class would watch a live feed of the national anthem being played in the school's concert hall, along with a few kids picking up certificates for various achievements. Kelly's co-teacher, Yun, would swing by and have a natter with my co-teacher, Tian, and I'd check in with Kelly and have a little bitch about the school. And then we'd be off, and teaching would begin. Instead, we were shown a documentary, a blood soaked half hour of unrelenting horror, about the rape of Nanjing, the notorious barbaric slaughter perpetrated by Japanese troops against the city's civilians. Seventy seven years on from the event, the hate still ran deep, and it was a hate that the next generation was being asked to learn. The kids shook it off fairly quick, but I'd taught the first class of the week in a stupefied daze, at the front of the class, failing to do justice to the fact that there once was a green little frog 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 who played in the wood on a log log log, I made an agreement with myself. Go to Nanjing. Do this properly. But for now, teach. Jess was up for it. She'd buzzed around Changshu long enough. It was time to get drunk in another city. So when the weekend struck, we bust to Suzhou and zipped away on high-speed rail to Nanjing. China's so-called southern capital. Nan meaning south, and Jing meaning capital, as opposed to Beijing, of course, which means northern capital. Interestingly enough, Dongjing, which means eastern capital, is China's name for Tokyo. There is no Xijing, which would mean western capital, but there is a Xi'an, which is where the terracotta warriors are. Xi'an means western peace, and did actually used to be China's ancient capital, but it was called Chang'an back then. Anyway, as China's capital city at the beginning of the Ming dynasty, Nanjing was perhaps the biggest city in the world. The story of Nanjing started with a child born into poverty not far from here in 1328 during the Mongol-ruled Yuan dynasty. This was only a few decades after Marco Polo had written so glowingly about the Mongol rulers. But the youngster had a different story to tell. His poor parents were forced to sell off his siblings to make ends meet. Then the rest of the family were devastated by drought and famine, leaving our young hero alone. Entering manhood as a beggar, and occasionally a monk, he eventually joined the forces, rising up against the Mongol overlords. He became the leader of the movement, and conquered what was to become Nanjing. He declared himself the Hongwu Emperor, the first of the Ming Dynasty, and pushed the Yuan leaders back north from whence they came. Having secured his seat, he became known as the Tyrant of Nanjing, suggesting that whatever humility his humble past had afforded him, had rubbed off in the ensuing ascent to power. The train, punctual to the second, accelerated to a speedy 350km an hour, and Jess and I retreated into our respective books. The flat earth, full of rice paddies and factories, where no speck of ground is unused gradually became hillsides and countryside, and a cool fog descended as we rolled into the city. Nanjing was on-off capital during the Ming dynasty, but when the Qing defeated the Ming in 1644, Beijing became China's official capital city. Nanjing was, for about a decade, in the mid-19th century, known as Tianjing, the heavenly capital. Its leader, Hong Xiuquan, the self-designated young brother of Jesus, A little handsome guy of the hacker ethnic minority, he fell into a delirium after repeatedly failing the civil service exams, and later realised, after reading some literature which had come over with Protestant missionaries, that his strange experiences were a sign that, lo and behold, he was God's second son. He whipped up support in a fashion not unlike that of his big brother, gaining enough followers to constitute the Heavenly Kingdom of Peace, which, as a group... Julie went on a rampage throughout the late 1840s, taking Nanjing in 1853. It was known as the Taiping Rebellion. It caused a major, major headache for the constantly besieged Qing dynasty, which was supposed to be running things at the time. Perhaps it was the infighting, perhaps the corrupting nature of power, or maybe the age gap of almost 2,000 years with his nearest sibling. But Hong's downfall eventually caught up with him. The Qing armies with the aid of their erstwhile enemies, the British and the French, mucked in to rid the land of the rebellious zealots and their proclamations of peace, which left so many, up to perhaps 30 million people, dead. We checked in at a youth hostel on Shanghai Road, Having visited Nanjing to visit a memorial hall which commemorates the massacre at the hands of the Japanese, I was at first struck by the number of Japanese restaurants on Shanghai Road. Perhaps there was more to this than just resentment, I wondered. After dinner and a few beers in a bar, under a beaming Mao portrait, we returned to the hostel for a nightcap and, if Jess is chuckling as anything to go by, a night of entertaining dreams. Over a morning coffee in the hostel cafe, we met Tina, She was local, mid-twenties, and met her acquaintance due to a shared interest in the air conditioning unit, which had been switched to heating mode, as with all the others as December got chillier. Tina was a young entrepreneur, who had opened up a board games cafe in the city. She had no interest in visiting the massacre memorial, stating assuredly that she'd seen it once, and once is enough, and opining that old troubles shouldn't be dwelt upon too strongly. It prevents progress. Those old people die, and their ideas, they die too, she told me. Young Japanese and young Chinese are friends. They understand each other more than even their own parents. Tina told us to go to the memorial tomorrow, and invited us to go to Purple Mountain today. That's much happier, she said. A mountain of positive ideas. Purple Mountain is not just any mountain. It's a monument to the life, achievements and ideas of Sun Yat-sen, or Sun Zhongshan, revolutionary harbinger of post-imperial China and the man whose name features on so many streets as Zhongshan Road, mentioned way back in episode 12. His tomb is in a mausoleum, completed in 1929, at the top of a challenging flight of stone steps at the lower end of this 450-metre-tall mountain. Tina, Jess and I stomped up together, under a clear blue sky. As the revered father of the nation, Sun is adopted by both sides of the ongoing Republican China narrative. It might seem surprising, considering that he was leader of the Nationalists, or the KMT, or the Guomindong, which are the communists' arch-civil war enemies. But to win over the population, one must adopt the nation's hero. Sun was nothing if not that. Born in 1866, he was a Hong Kong-educated doctor who became increasingly frustrated with China's refusal to embrace better habits. His campaign to rid China of imperial rule took him around the world as a political exile, where he became Christian, forged contacts and plotted political uprisings. He played a paramount role in the overthrow of the Qing Empire in 1911, the Xinhai Revolution, but his tenancy at the top of Chinese politics was fairly short. In a political compromise, he gave the presidency to the strongman Yuan Shikai, who decided that he would proclaim himself emperor. No doubt something of a backward step for the republicans. Thankfully though for the forces of republicanism, Yuan Shikai was so unwell, and opposition to his imperial restoration project was so strong, that he only remained emperor for 83 days. He died not long after. Sun's subsequent efforts to unite the splinted country, however, were not very successful, and he died from cancer in 1925, aged 58, with the country as messy as ever. Thus, Sun's achievements are in the breadth and influence of his ideas, and the nobility of his character, a legacy no doubt aided by the posthumous personality cult driven by Chiang Kai-shek, who took over the Nationalist Party after Sun. The phrase, trust me I'm a doctor, couldn't be more apt for Sun. No one has a bad word to say about him. As we climbed the steps in the December chill, among dozens of fellow climbers, Tina spoke of him as a figure of female adoration, and included herself in that crowd. Wide steps, flanked with cuboid hedges at the top, rose towards the mausoleum. Its roof a deep nationalist blue, almost indistinguishable from the sky. The arches have Sun's words, Tian Sha Gong, meaning, what is under heaven is for all. Inside, a stone Sun Yat-sen sits wisely under a nationalist emblem, with a scroll on his lap, which perhaps he was reading, until something in the distance, something arresting, which had to be pondered, caught his attention. Sun had three principles for the new China he was helping build. Rights, nationalism, and livelihood. He had a socialist lean towards redistribution of land and wealth, but supported a kind of mutually dependent pursuit of personal ambition. Some believed in direct democracy, a sublimely novel concept for a Chinese culture, which had been told for countless generations that power was to be shared by a few who held that elusive mandate of heaven. In 5,000 years of cultural continuity in history, mainland China had democracy for exactly zero years. After they sent the Qing dynasty packing, elections were flirted with. But they never got quite beyond blackmail, assassinations, boycotts and coups. Efforts were made immediately, but the first prospective premier, the Nationalist Party's Song Ren, was assassinated not long after his party won the most seats. Hence, no democratic exchange of power ever took place. When the Nationalist Party was at its most stable, just after Sun's death in 1925, it was decided, surely with the best intentions at heart, that the people lacked the education to make an informed vote. Later, after defeating the Nationalists, Mao Zedong scornfully rejected the merits of Western democracy, but used the term new democracy to refer to a stage towards socialism, with power share between the proletariat, the capitalist, the peasant, and the petty bourgeoisie, as was represented on the PRC flag. China still uses the word democracy, but it means the ideals, or buzzwords, of equality, social justice, and rule of law, not voting. The voting that does occur, as Will in Ushi told me in episode 16. It's hardly worth the ballot it's written on. Despite various rulers drawing up leadership structures to govern the country over the years, the reality of who is in charge in China tends to be defined by raw power. The Empress Dowager Xi was the real ruler behind a couple of emperors who nominally sat on the Dragon Throne. Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek was always in charge, no matter what his position in the Guomindang was. Mao Zedong was the party chairman, not the president or the premier, but he ruled over all. And later, Deng Xiaoping ruled the roost, despite technically ranking only third. Xi Jinping is now at the top, but he's managed to create or abolish posts to concentrate power in himself. He is the general secretary of the party and president of the country. No pretense is there. So if the communists are now the rulers of China... Then, what happened to the nationalists who first got rid of the Qing dynasty? Well, some of this troubled era was covered in episode 12, Random Impulse, where the communists and the nationalists tussled or colluded with the gangsters of Shanghai in the 1920s. So, if you fancy a refresh, go back and listen to that. And there is more about these difficult decades coming up in the next couple of episodes. But for now, let's skip to the modern day, because the Nationalist Party is still an important political party and it's often in government. Only now they are limited to Taiwan, much to Beijing's displeasure. Taiwan has indeed succeeded in becoming a democracy, but it didn't come easy. The nationalist head honcho back in the day, Chiang Kai-shek, refashioned the party's priorities, making it far more right-wing in outlook, far more brutal in practice. Their move to Taiwan was both a military retreat at the hands of the communists, and an opportunistic power grab and led to the so-called White Terror, and a period of martial law which lasted 38 years until the 1980s. People suspected of having communist sympathies were imprisoned, some were executed. They were, however, eventually able to put authoritarianism behind them, in part by acknowledging it, unlike their communist cousins. Taiwan's first elections took place in the mid-90s, and despite intimidation from the People's Republic of China, the small island country has grown into one of the most well-functioning democracies in Asia. For a conversation with New Bloom editor Brian Hugh about Taiwan, check out the episode after number 16. In the modern age, Taiwan has thus far been almost continually ruled by the Nationalist Party. But as democracy has developed there, elections have become closely fought, and the opposition, the centre-left pro-independence Democratic Progressive Party, part of the Green Coalition, first won a troubled period in office between 2000 and 2008, during which time their lack of experience became glaringly obvious and they were voted out. Chen Shui-bian was Taiwan's president for those eight years. On the eve of election night 2004, Chen and Vice President Annette Lu were campaigning in the southern city of Tainan. is a small city bursting with history, the capital of the island under Chinese imperial rule. As the two politicians rode in an open top jeep, bullets fired from a homemade gun and hit the President in the abdomen and the VP in the knee. Both were rushed to hospital, but were fortunate enough to be out again in time to cast their votes in next day's election. They won it by the narrowest of margins, leading to accusations by the Nationalists that the shooting was a set-up to win sympathy votes. The Greens responded that it could have been an attempt by mainland China to remove the threat of pro-independence leader. Either way, The evidence pointed towards a hard-up Taiwanese citizen who killed himself before anyone was able to ask. As Chen's presidency ran on, corruption accusations began to amass, involving dodgy receipts and bribery. Chen had taken a 50% pay cut on taking office, so it does seem surprising that he would illegally reroute money into his personal accounts. But political opponents, the electorate, and eventually the courts, turned against Chen, and he was sent to prison for life but not before he was detained for 600 days. After locking him up, the ruling nationalists set about removing the privileges that former presidents enjoy. It all led to Chen going on hunger strike and then attempting suicide in 2013. It was a chilling warning for those who dream of an independent Taiwan. So despite having a democratic system, a certain something of the old ways, deep and ingrained, flows through Taiwan's politics. But the Green Coalition, of which... The Democratic Progressive Party is the largest party, have a better claim to Sun's ideals than either of the old parties. And they would regain power in 2016, as the people of Taiwan became unnerved by China's increasing authority over Hong Kong. The Taiwanese voted against the possibility of something similar happening to them in the young democracy that they have on the island. The Greens maintained Taiwanese independence as an ideal, even if they lack the metal, with thousands of Chinese missiles trained on them to actually declare it. Faced with these troublemakers, the communists and the nationalists have once again become unlikely allies, united in the belief that there is indeed one China, even if they disagree on who rightfully rules it. And so to the absurdity of seeing the nationalist emblem, the white sun on the blue sky, the same as the national flag of the rogue state Taiwan, proudly painted on the ceiling above the sun's statue on the mountaintop here in Nanjing. here and the so-called sacrificial hall, among tourists taking selfies and drinking iced tea, those standing contemplatively. I wondered, what they made of all these contradictions? Those ideals, are they lost or just hibernating? Tina didn't want to discuss grand narratives, the deeper meanings. She was busy telling Jess about Changshu, our hometown in China. It's backwards, she was saying. My friend is gay in Changshu and cannot be accepted in his university. Small towns have the wrong opinions. Shanghai has everything you need. You should go and live there. But for now, we're staying in Nanjing, and we have more to say about this southern capital. So next time I'm stuck in the Middle Kingdom with you, the story of three sisters who were part of China's most famous powerful family during the Republic of China years, but became bitter rivals as the country splintered.